Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're continuing our series on regional wine marketing bodies, and we're going to talk with Chris Toronto, who is the communications director of Paso Robles Wine Country Alliance. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, right on. Thanks for having me, Robert. Let's just get this out of the way because we were talking about this a little bit in the green room. How do I actually say Paso Robles? Is it Paso Robles or Paso Robles? I've heard both ways. What's the appropriate way to say it? I'll say that when I'm in market, I say Paso Robles because that's how you read it on the bottle, right? If you were to just read the label, it would, you would say it, you would pronounce it as Robles. And I kind of think of it as like making sure that's how we're introduced at first. And then you can kind of wade into those waters of how we butcher most Spanish names in California because it's not Los Angeles, right? It's Los Angeles. And so here in Paso, it's Paso Robles or just Paso. I guess any Spanish speaking person tries to correct me every time I say Paso Robles. (laughs) 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 Like that's how they say it there. (laughs) Very true. So Paso Robles is one of the most dynamic regions in California. I was wondering if you could give a brief overview of the region and kind of like what's going on there right now. Sure. So just to familiarize everybody, we are halfway between San Francisco to our north and L.A. to our south, like quite literally right smack dab in the middle, but along California's central coast. So we've got Monterey just to the north of us, and we've got Santa Barbara just to the south of us, those respective wine regions. As far as us, our breadth and size, we are about 41,000 vineyard acres, so that's what's under vine here. The area is really big in that it's over 600,000 acres as a region with 11 different AVAs, but really under vine, it's only 41,000. We've got a, you know, a little over 60 different varieties that are grown here. We've got a lot of different mesoclimates, so it's topographically very, very different. Everything from 600, say, feet above sea level elevation all the way up to 2200 foot elevation where vines are grown. Like I said, we're close to the Pacific Ocean. So that has a lot to do with our growing region and our environment here. Back to wineries, we're about 200 wineries in our area is what we tend to say. Bricks and mortar wineries, actual physical buildings, maybe that's more like 170, but there are a lot of those, uh, you know, secondary and virtual brands that exist here. You know, the population of the town of Paso, we're just around 30,000 people. But if, as you go into the unincorporated areas, it can grow. And the whole North County is about 100,000 or so people. So it's still very rural here. That's what you'll find is a wine country that's still country that, you know, it's still vines and it's still country roads. And it's up until a few years ago, we only had one Starbucks in this town. And now we're up to like five. <laughs> <laughs> that's when you made it. Maybe when you yeah. had 10. <laughs> the size is the number of Starbucks per capita. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, one of the things when I was there was really, you know, because I stayed in the town of Paso Robles and then uh, grew up the vineyards. And I was really surprised, and I think it was like May, by how much temperature fluctuation there was between the day and night. It'd be like in the daytime, it would be like 100 degrees. And then you'd come out and I'd have like frost on my car in the mornings. I was like, what? <laughs> what is going on? That's like a 60 degree Fahrenheit swing, which is enormous. And that's what really makes us special. When we go out into market, we often even tell people a little tagline often is Paso Robles, uh, even cooler than you think, because 
it gets warm here. It does. It gets, it, it'll be a hundred, 115 sometimes on some of those long, like heat stretches, say in late August and, you know, maybe early September or something like that. But we cool off at night and that has everything to do with that maritime influence that we get from the Pacific Ocean. We're really lucky. If you were to look at the coast of California and where we are on the coast, you'll see that adjacent to us, basically parallel, is this big indent on the coast, which is called Estero Bay. And within Estero Bay is Morro Bay, which is a little bit more famous with the big old rock and all that kind of stuff. Well, anyway, that bay itself and where it lines up with the California coast, and it's almost its apex of this bay, is a little slightly lower elevation of the San Lucia mountain range. So that same San Lucia mountain range that makes up the SLH AVA to our north in Monterey, that San Lucia mountain range with a slight dip in elevation, when it gets really warm over in Paso, and of course we all, heat rises, it actually mixes with some of that upper atmosphere, cooler air that is actually fueled by the Pacific Ocean. So it makes that advection fog that rolls in and out, just like the Bay Area up north or places down south. You see these big fog banks? Well, that fog bank stretches the length of what would be a Stero Bay, and it pushes or well, I shouldn't say it pushes, it's a vacuum effect that is happening where it's actually as the warm air is rising, all of that cool air is flowing in and through the slightly lower elevation, which we call the Templeton Gap. And that's what cools us off at night. It's like an air conditioner. So at like three o'clock in the afternoon, somebody flicks a switch and within hours, we're going from 100 degree temperature down to 50 degrees for the night. We know what that's like in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Historically, Paso was more known for varieties like Zinfandel and Cabernet Sauvignon, so very warm climate varieties. But Rhone varietals have really come to the forefront in maybe the last decade or so. What has driven that trend? You know, when you look back on us, we've kind of followed that same trajectory as most of California, right? Zinfandel, this heritage variety that was developed over on the East Coast from clippings that made it over sea and, you know, people wanted to bring them along with them because it's part of their culture and whatever. And that's where so much of that Zinfandel and maybe even Carignan and those kind of Italian field blends had started. But then in the 80s, when Paso was seen as this farming area with potential for grapes, before even the wine world was even looking at making wine from Paso, they were looking at growing grapes from Paso. And so that's where in the 80s and 90s, we had these large plantings of Cabernet Sauvignon that went crazy. And that's what the demand in the market wanted too at the time, right? But then as time went on, and as we had some individuals come to Paso specifically to grow grapes, and let's start with Gary Eberly. He introduced Syrah to, to the United States back in the late 80s, early 90s. Then that kind of started this Syrah anyway, being seen as, as a viable variety for Paso. But then you have the Haas family and the folks from Bocastel who created Tablas Creek here. And when they did that, you know, they really did it right in that they went through and they were importing clippings and they were being quarantined and propagated until they were clean and then making it over here to Paso to be planted, but also repropagated. It basically opened up the West Coast to this real Rhone varieties 
that then became the TCV clone or the Topless Creek Vineyard clone, and then shared. I think now they have a partnership with uh, Novavine or something like that. What you have is this instant injection of Rhone varieties into our region that was already starting to embrace it. But I would say the advent of the TCV clone definitely helped jumpstart our region and so many others around us into embracing the Rhone varieties. Was there something that brought the Haas family in terms of climate or terroir to Paso versus some other region for the Rhone varieties? The way I understand it is, is that because of what we have here as far as calcareous types of soils, high in pH, high in calcium, basically they were looking for similar conditions to say the Rhone Valley with the amount of limestone that exists there. And limestone being obviously that very close cousin to what would be, you know, calcareous types of clay or soil or rock or shale or in all these other iterations of calcium rich type soil, limestone being kind of the pinnacle, they came looking for that and basically found it here. And that's where, as the story goes, they saw a road cut somewhere along Peachy Canyon Road. And that's when they were like, this is the place. Now let's find the land. It's interesting that Bocastel, because they use all the varieties, if it was someone else from Chateau of the Pop, they may have just brought Grenache or a couple of the, or Mouvet and, and not everything like the Bocastel family or the parent family, actually. Yeah, the parent family, for sure, and the Haas family working together. to, And they're still, of course, involved, the Perrins and the, and the Haas. Of course, Bob, unfortunately, passed away some years ago. His son, Jason Haas, is still at the helm there at Tablas and is still carrying on his dad's dream of having this U.S.-based brand that is doing phenomenal. And they've done so much to help elevate Paso as a whole, but also the Rhone varieties. You know, Paso Robles has several sub-AVAs. I think you guys have 11, if I'm remembering correctly. I'm curious on why these were created and what impact does creating these sub-AVAs have for the region? Yeah. So the process started... Well, gosh, you could practically say that the process started back in 1983 when we first created the AVA because you'll see that while York Mountain AVA is adjacent to Paso, it's not within Paso. We can almost call it our 12th man if you wanted. But the reason why they're not is because the winemaker who uh, owned a brand up there way back when, Max Goldman was his name, and he had the original Ascension Winery turned into York Mountain Winery, eventually sold it. But when they were creating the AVA of Paso in 83, a lot of our original forefathers, if you will, like Gary Eberly and a number of other guys, they were all talking and essentially saying, okay, yeah, let's draw some lines. Let's do this. Let's do that. Well, Max is like, no, York Mountain is totally different than Paso, even though it's like right there and part of the mountain range. And, you know, there's a lot of elements that are similar. He claimed it's not the same. And so if anything, kind of almost planting the seed and a lot of people who were a part of in the future, fast forward into this AVA committee that was established in 2007. And why it was established was because there was lots of talk at splitting up the AVA in some manner, whether it was, you know, using the compass rosette, (laughs) northwest, east, south, whatever, or, you know, what side of the river you were on. Eventually, what this group did is by pooling their funds and using science as a standard, they were able to come up with these 11 AVAs all at once and then submit them to the TTB all at once rather than doing it 
piecemeal. They wanted to just do it as just this one fail swoop. So that way we're not going back again. And we're not, you know, let's just get it done right away. It took seven years. So in 2014 is when it was approved. And that had a brief thing to do with, you know, a government shutdown, the issue with Calistoga and the how approvals were being made by TTB. And then also the fact that it was 11 volumes of a petition that had to be reviewed. So it went through some time. But ultimately, it was done in this process that included everybody. There were naysayers, of course. But today, it is now almost our benchmark as to where we were at the time that it was approved and how things are going to be defined as we keep going, right? Because we're not at that point yet to be able to say, oh, the stuff from the Willow Creek AVA is this versus the stuff from Creston, right? When you were creating them, how important was it that there was no nested AVAs? Because if you look at NAP and Sonoma, a lot of times there's nested AVAs, which can be very confusing at least from a consumer perspective. But I noticed that, at least on the maps that I've seen, they, they look like they're all very clear-cut lines and geographically defined. How important was that for you guys when you were making the formation of these 11? Well, I think that's why we went with the 11 to begin with. So that way you didn't have, say, a nested AVA already in place. We were a blank canvas of this area that was 42 miles wide by 35 miles north to south, and with nothing really you would call an area an area, but it wasn't already defined as such. And so I think that's why they wanted to just go for it altogether at one point in time, whether it became a district or whether its name was, you know, somehow already associated with the greater AVA. That's how that came to be. But what we did in place of the ratification of the AVAs, though, was get a conjunctive labeling law put in place. And so that then at least made sure, made certain that we preserve the brand Paso Robles alongside and in conjunction with, say, these lesser AVAs. They have to write both or they just can write both? It has to be in conjunction with. And so it needs to be of a font size of equal or greater value, for one thing, than the lesser AVA. And so it could be the Willow Creek District, Paso Robles, or it could be Paso Robles, the Willow Creek District, one way or the other, but just in conjunction with. Interesting. And so you are part of Paso Robles Wine Country Alliance. What is the mission and purpose of that organization? Our mission is dedicated to the promotion and protection of Paso Robles wine country and the continuous improvement of the quality of its wines, vineyards, and experiences. So basically, as this marketing organization for the Paso Robles AVA or American Viticultural Area, we are also in the business of making sure that we're preserving the brand and the brand integrity. And so we work with our wineries and our vineyards to always provide them with the best that we can do as far as maybe it's education or it's professional development or just tools in general that they can use to do the best that they can. And then we do the best that we can to enhance that brand awareness of Paso Wine out in the greater marketplace. And how do you define success for you guys? It entirely depends on the programming because we market Paso and we market Paso to a number of different audiences, whether it be consumers, 
So end user who needs to, who needs to, I'm saying who needs to <laughs> drink the wine. Yes, they do. But <laughs> that end user that's purchasing the bottle of wine or are we influencing the influencer being, say, the sommelier who is running a wine program somewhere in New York or Austin versus the journalist who has an audience and that they become our third party endorsement in writing about Paso. These are all the three different basic audiences of ours, not including our internal audience, our our members, which I can talk about that. But when it comes to defining success in speaking to those audiences and raising that brand awareness, like I said, it just comes down to the program itself. And if it's a program that brings on data, so like consumer events, if you're looking at a consumer event that we might do, obviously we're going to look at the PL at the end of the day and go, are we up? Are we down? <laughs> you know, but also did we give a good experience to that consumer? And so then that's where surveys come in and that's where we also capture anecdotal information. If it's advertising, obviously you're looking at your reach. If it's conversion articles, you're looking at your audience numbers. And then of course, if you're bringing in media, and it is structured in some manner, we're surveying them and we're trying to make sure that we're putting our best foot forward at all times. In terms of the members of the Wine Country Alliance, is it wineries, grape growers, merchants, retailers even? You name it. Yes, absolutely. Of course, our primary member is going to be the growers and the vendors, right? And they're set up on a sliding scale depending on their case production or the acreage that they may have. And you know, when we sell membership, when we talk about membership, I should say, anybody that is a part of the wine community and that benefits from the wine community. But first and foremost, the messaging when we welcome a member in is to discuss how we are elevating that brand awareness of Paso. We're trying to, of course, you know, raise that tide that floats all boats. And their investment into us is going to be able to do that. So it's not like a slot machine where it's this instant ROI, but rather we are selling the idea of them being a part of this greater good of raising that brand awareness of Paso. Now, do they get ROI? Of course, and we're able to report that to them on saying like, look, you were a part of maybe this program or that one, or here's the number of eyeballs that have went to your website from ours and things like that. So we're, we're still able to report back. We try to capture pretty much the whole wine community. And so in terms of the model, if we talk about producers or growers, is it in terms of your business, model, their contribution to the Paso Rebels Wine Country Alliance will be based on their production or output or how much vine they have under acreage? Yes, exactly. For those particular businesses. And then when it comes to hoteliers or restaurateurs, for hoteliers, it, it's a room count type of thing. For restaurateurs, uh, it's a base membership. And for associate membership, so if you're like, if you're the bottle guy or you're a label maker or you're somebody that's a supplier, a lot of suppliers like to be members of our organization, of course, because then that helps them show that they are supporting our industry, for one thing, because our winemakers and the like like to see that, that they're supporting our organization. We're pretty tight knit in Paso, I should say. So like the Alliance, we have the majority of members of wineries. Uh, There's not another organization like ours in town. And so our involvement with the industry is very close, especially through these COVID times where providing all kinds of information every every second it came out to ensure that the wine community was uh, kept up to speed on everything. But back to membership, though, 
there are sliding scales and there are base amounts, but then suppliers, there are sponsorship opportunities for suppliers where then they can pay a little extra, have their logo, be a part of any of the public events that we do, have an opportunity to speak to, to our winery members, which would be their customers. That helps to generate what would be our budget and our operating budget. Of the 200 wineries that you mentioned are in Paso, roughly how many are in the Alliance? Probably like 190. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. That just shows how valuable it is for these wineries. I could practically count the brands on my hands that are not members. And some of them are too small and rightfully so. I mean, you're a 200 case little winery. Uh, it might not make sense because you don't have a tasting room or something. Or maybe your production is matched by your wine club and you don't need to be a member of our organization. That's perfectly fine. I mean, that you know, it's a business decision. And so in terms of contributions from your members outside of the sponsorships or any fees, I'm assuming there's some products that you're going to do some trade events and things like that for. Would that be correct? Yes, we do a number of trade events. We do a number of consumer events. The consumer events will help us augment our budget, but it's usually the ones that we do in market, those are usually budget neutral. So if we go to San Diego and do a tasting, what we're charging the consumer is basically covering our costs to bring wineries down and to do a trade event on top of it. When we do events here in town, although they are like Winefest and Zinfest, third weekend of March, third weekend of May, third weekend of October, we have large-scale events here. And when there is a ticket associated with those things, there will be some revenue-generating component to it, but it's not what's floating us for the year. Are those participation from the wineries and the different events mandatory? No, they are not mandatory. They're volunteer. And also we don't charge them to be a part of a lot of our events unless there are elements that require maybe something extra or whatever. Like we do one event over in Cambria to the west of us where we actually do charge wineries to have a table at that event. That's like the only one that we do, but it sells out every year. Uh, it's got a really great consumer base that attends that event. So you talked about your audience being a lot of the influencers like the sommeliers or what might call the trade consumers and, and journalists. From a geographic standpoint, is it mostly you're trying to spread the word within California, the U.S., or globally? So California and definitely Californians that are south of Paso tend to be that big feeder market for us. So L.A., Orange County, San Diego. We also get a really good influx from the Valley being Fresno. The Bay Area tends to be a big challenge for us. Uh, they have, of course, Napa Sonoma in their backyard, but it's growing. We're seeing definitely more and more people coming south. I think that where you can be challenged with Paso is definitely our location on the state. Like I had mentioned at the beginning, you know, we're halfway between LA and San Francisco. And so we're not a day trip. You got to be here and want to be here to be here. And you're probably going to be here two nights at the minimum, maybe three to really get an experience. Or you need to get the people who are connected to both the North and the South, like like me. I, I live in San Francisco. I'm from Orange County in Southern California. I drive down. I can make a stopping point there on the way down or, you know, as a an overnight stay or something like that. That's true. And, and when we can, when we can pull you off the road, I mean, you know, we, we actually have a number of billboards here in town that are saying, <laughs> come visit wine, because you don't see wine country from the road, you know, 
I mean, if you're coming down from San Francisco and you're coming down and you're going through the southern portion of Monterey County, you see hills upon hills of vineyards, but maybe one tasting room, I think. Right, right. right? And then you get to Paso and you really actually don't see vineyards with the exception of maybe the Ducey Vineyard from the 101. You've got to kind of get off the road to see some vineyards. And so we do need to remind people. As far as other markets, though, out of state, I think you were leaning towards that. Texas is a major market for us. Illinois is huge. New York and Florida are big wine consumption markets. And so a lot of our wineries definitely focus there as well. And do you guys think much about export? Yes. Canada is the one. Working with the LCBO or SAQ or whatever, that's super important for us. We do that through Wine Institute. So we're very lucky to have a good relationship with them that when there's an opportunity, we can do something about it. Of the various techniques you've used to promote Paso Robles wine region in the past, what have you found to be the most effective way of promoting the region? So I've been with the Alliance for 14 years, and I would say that advertising is great and it definitely reaches a lot of eyeballs all at one time. But I think that the most effective way, and maybe I'm biased because I'm a PR, but I think is that third party endorsement from a journalist, whether they be a critic or whether they be a blogger who's a mommy traveler or something like that. But they have eyeballs, they have readers, there's an engagement that happens out there. Granted, traditional media, back when I first started with the Alliance, that was huge, getting magazines, getting print, basically. And these days it's changed a bit because everybody has some sort of a platform or an audience. I mean, shoot, I now... Because of COVID, I do a weekly show on Zoom. And so I can now, yeah, everybody's got something, right? That they need to get that word out. So I think that most effective has been our PR strategies and trying to make sure that we're getting in print somewhere that has a lot of discerning eyeballs that are into what it is that we're selling, basically. But I think that's been an exceptional tool for us. There's others too, but yeah. I mean, obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic. It sounds like digital has been a big push for you. You just mentioned no weekly Zoom call. I'm curious on what things are you going to maintain once we get past this and we get past the PTSD of social distancing? Like, what do you think is here to stay for you? Well, I definitely think the virtual thing is here to stay. I moderated a panel at Unified Wine and Grape Symposium this year on the virtual experience. And I had a winery online retailer, wine.com, a winery Onyx, and then a journalist. And across the board, this new medium of sharing through this small screen that we have on our desks is here to stay. It's part of, it's part of your marketing plan now. You have a website, you have your social media handles, you have something that you're reaching people that are far away that can't be with you in person. That will maintain, I, I believe. So wine is interesting, right? Wine is that one thing that you have to put in somebody's mouth to sell them with. You don't do that with mayonnaise or rhubarb, right? You're not sitting there, hey, try this mayo, you know? Like, that's gross. Mayo gets dissed again. (laughs) Right? (laughs) But you do that with wine. And so once we are back to being in front of people again, we'll be doing that again. But it's going to be a while. It's just, I mean, you know, buffets are going away, right? And, and, you know, family-style dinners are going away, Any any shareable consumables are going away. Well, it'll be challenging, but 
we'll be back out there doing this again, I know. For the print, the third-party endorsement as being the most effective, are there specific angles or stories or types of print or things that you found to be more effective than others? So I often tell my members, you know, you need to tell your own true story. Don't try to be a different brand. Don't just because that brand is doing really well or whatever they've got, who knows, whatever their bells and whistles could be. Promote your own assets, know your own assets, know your own story. And so for us, when it comes to Paso and when we're trying to talk about Paso, we don't present Paso like another region. We present us as our true selves. We're kind of mavericks, a lot of cowboys here. It is pretty country, like I had mentioned already. And there are no real rules. So we are very unapologetic when we say we don't rest our hat on one hook when it comes to a grape variety. We're not just cab, we're not just sin, we're not just rum. We're a little bit of everything. And we're quite proud of it because we're basically making the best wine that we can. And when it comes to personalities, we have a lot of personalities, a lot of really crazy different personalities here. Not everybody is kind of that same, you know, Stepford winemaker. They're going to be different. And so I try real hard in our PR to be able to really layer it up with people that are super heady and serious to the scientists, to the artists, to the surfer, to all of those types of people that make us who we are is this this real kind of melting pot, if you will, of craziness <laughs> and down to earthness. We try to truly, we try to just be about as real as can be. Peter and I just did a seminar uh, not too long ago for a bunch of wineries in a program to help them understand like the influencer space and things like that. And you mentioned that virtual's here to stay, but a lot of that stuff seems intimidating, especially to smaller wineries that don't have that bandwidth. Are you providing like a playbook for them? Because obviously it seems like the actual Paso Robles Wine Alliance is actually done a lot of this stuff pretty well and is pretty diverse in this new form of media. So let's go into member education, if I may, for just a hot second. As far as a member organization, we're not just taking their money and just being like, okay, we're out there marketing. But we also try, like I had mentioned, to provide professional development and educational tools. And that would be one of them. We actually have a seminar coming up here pretty soon for our members. So we do these monthly educational series of couple times a month, actually, where we're talking to whether it be the growers through our VitTech program, winemakers through our wine tech. We even have a tasting room manager's luncheon. And then we have this other thing for the hospitality side of things, which includes wineries called Best. And we bring in good speakers. And these days, it's all on this platform, right? On Zoom or whatever. And that way, we're still helping them connect, get education, and be ready, be ready for the next thing wherever we can help them be ready. And one of our next ones coming up is that very subject where we do want to give them a playbook, if you will, of how to best present yourself on one of these platforms to do, whether it be a tasting or some sort of form of outreach to your consumer, because this is a relationship business and we want them to continue that. And right now this is the tool. And so, yes, we are doing that. Mm, that's interesting. You know, it's not a day trip for anyone in California to go to Paso as a destination. How much is tourism or visitation a key element of spreading the word for Paso? It's exceptionally important for our region. We have, so I'm quoting some figures from 2015 because that's when the last big study was done. But 
when you look back on those numbers, actually it was reported in 17, I think, but nonetheless, you would see that the economic impact, for one thing, of tourism in our region, specifically in Paso, is about $1.5 billion economic impact. So it has a lot a lot of impact in this region. If you look at the county, it's 1.9. So we're kind of the, that gorilla in the room, if you will, of, of Paso line for San Luis Obispo County. But your question was about tourism. And so total tourism related spending, though, in that time period is 194 million back in 2015. And so you can imagine how important that is to our local economy for that $1.9 billion economic impact for the entire county anyway. We don't shy away from trying to encourage people to visit Paso. I mean, a lot of our messaging isn't just the brand awareness of Paso, drink Paso wine. It's about coming to wine country and being here and immersing yourself in that experience. That's why our consumer tag actually is where wine takes you. Because whether it be a memory or whether it be physically jumping on a plane and going to wine country, wine takes you someplace, right? So So I see you guys also have a podcast, which is quite interesting. How has that helped build up awareness for the region? And also, how have you been able to grow your listenership? The listenership has been almost entirely organic. While we have some ads out there that are specially placed where, where they need to be for podcasts, right? So whether it be App Store stuff or you know whatever, just on Facebook, things like that. It has definitely been this real organic process of building up a listenership. The podcast itself, what we've seen from it is only that, is only listenership. It's so new that we really haven't had this opportunity yet to start analyzing how it may be converting. We can get anecdotal information from wineries who have maybe appeared on the podcast. It's also called Where Wine Takes You. We've seen some anecdotal return from Where Wine Takes You. And the same with the Zoom show that we do, the Paso Wine Hour. People will join wine clubs from afar or because it sounded good, it looked good, you know, or they'll actually come to visit over the summer. We actually had a few times over where some brands have said, yeah, I was on your Zoom show or I was on the podcast and somebody said they heard me on there and came in and they bought wine, you know? So we've heard that it happens, but we don't have anything that's data driven right now. So when you look at Paso as a region, what do you think are the most exciting elements that are coming up? I think that it's pretty exciting. And we were talking a little bit offline about this though, about how, Some people in the wine industry, in the wine world, who have very successful projects outside of the area are deciding to come to Paso and make an investment here. And I think you can look at it two ways. You can look at it as like, oh, no, now the the personality of Paso and blah, 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 it might be diluted or something. And I don't think so, because let's get back to that where we are. We're not a day trip from one of those cities. So to be here... You got to be here. You're going to spend your time here. You're going to invest your time here. If you don't, well, you're not going to probably set yourself up for success if you don't. But where I see it going with these people that might be bringing some outside investment in or some outside ideas is that it actually helps the whole region because the camaraderie that exists in Paso is 
pretty crazy. I mean, everybody talks to everybody. You sneeze funny in this town and everyone knows, you know, but that's a good thing because then everybody is helping one another. Your pump goes out and you're probably calling your neighbor and saying, can I borrow your pump? I'm bottling tomorrow, you know, or your forklift or your whatever, your tractor or something, something goes awry. And the camaraderie of this region is pretty much electric. And so new people coming into town, well, they don't really have a choice, <laughs> but if they're bringing in new ideas and maybe even you know new tools and things like that, it will get shared and it'll get spread and people then will be like, oh, that's pretty cool how they're doing that over there. And maybe they brought this idea down from them or from overseas or something like that. And then it really honestly helps. It's a positive way of looking at it, I know, but it really actually helps the rest of the region out. What are some of the issues that your wine country alliance face or your members in that alliance face that you guys are dealing with? I'm thinking anywhere from trade perceptions to, you know, environmental impacts of the area. Water is a huge issue here. There is a moratorium currently on planting any new vineyards that may fall within the borders of what's called the Paso Robles Water Basin. And that's a large area that's in our kind of northeastern quadrant of the Paso Robles AVA. So it includes like Estrella and Geneseo, portions of Creston, a tiny little bit of the Adelaide area that you can't plant there unless you're grandfathered in. And that has everything to do with the water table going pretty low at one point in time, especially at the height of the drought. People's home wells are going dry versus some of the vineyard wells that were, you know, dug at a much deeper depth than say the the previous those older wells so there was this cry foul on the wine region and so they did put this kind of moratorium if you will on any new plantings as they try to solve some of these issues which is still in that kind of solving process and working with the state and working with the water board and, and so many other agencies to ensure that something is done where all parties affected are represented and feel that they've been heard, if you will. And so that's a major issue in our area, of course. We don't get a lot of rain. I mean, this last rainstorm actually just surpassed all of the rain that we had from a week before back a whole year, right? So what just landed on us was so much water in only 48 hours (laughs) that it's our annual rainfall. It's like, we're, we're good right? Well, because we don't get a lot of rain, of course, then a lot of those wells and those aquifers are not necessarily recharged over time. And so that can be kind of a challenge for us. I would say wildfires are also a challenge for us as we're dry and we're part of what would be, you know, this California that has seen some unprecedented uh, wildfires over the years, especially this last year. We were very lucky this last year that nothing actually truly affected us. No smoke taint, uh, no actual physical fire damage of any sort. Honestly, really, truly lucky with so much that happened in the state. But that's always a concern here. So, I mean, obviously with fires, vineyards are great fire breaks, which is kind of, you know, but then if you're not a lot of plants because of the water table, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. Have you started to see uh, wineries switch to dry farming as being like a natural progression because of some of these rules or is that or not there yet? I know from so many of our wineries that where they can dry farm, they do. And because of that calcareous type of soil that is pretty predominant all around the AVA, it's it's a little bit more obvious 
and on the substrate when you go into the western hills where uplift has been there, it's mountains. So of course you're going to see the road cuts, you're going to see the limestones and all of that. So you see it right there. But even if you go east, you'll discover it as you know decomposed and a little bit older. But that stuff in particular, it's like a sponge. And so it really retains water. And so you're going to see a lot more of these dry farm vineyards over in those hills where they have that type of soil. But it's not by any means a developing or burgeoning trend to go dry farm. But everybody here does still practice that whole deficit irrigation thing. And in terms of the trade perceptions or consumer perceptions about the region? That tagline was very, very specifically created, uh, even cooler than you think, because I think what we've dealt with over the years have been a lot of trade saying, oh, Paso, you guys are so hot. Your, your, your fruit is overblown and it's, you know, jammy and high alcohol and all that. Well, you know what? It might be high alcohol, but it's balanced. <laughs> and, and I dare say, give it another shot because maybe what you've gotten over the years has been stuff that isn't maybe a best representative of, of our region. And so one of the ways we've tried to mitigate that is, is when we go out in a market and let's say I go and I do a master class in New York, or I'm doing some sort of a show in St. Louis or something. We do a blind tasting of wines that are going to be shown where we're showing them. Now, if you're there, you're standing behind your table and you're showing your wines, all the power to you, man. Show what you want to show. Just hopefully show something, the good stuff, right? Well, we do a blind tasting ahead of any master classes and, so, and the like, like that, even for our PR programs when we're sending samples and things like that, because we want to know that we're putting our best foot forward when it comes to those wines. We feel like we've seen a little change in the trade perception that it isn't all about these high octane wines that are super jammy and overripe, but rather people are starting to see and understand that you can find some really good balanced wines from Paso. So are, are those blind tastings against non-Paso wines or they're just no, all Paso? They're actually all Paso, but then they're just going to be up against each other. So cab category or Syrah or Rhone, or, you know, those types of things. And so we're picking the best out of what we might have. And we have a local troupe of uh, sommeliers that'll come through blind taste. I set it up and we walk away with wines that we know are, are going to wow versus uh, something else. I like that preparation. Any consumer perceptions, like in terms of educating, like if you want consumers to understand Paso, like we're like three bullet points that you want them to like understand that is replicated in your marketing materials. First off, I would say don't try too hard to understand the AVA map. I think a lot of consumers want to try to wrap their head around those types of things. And it's a little early for that. And so I would say, let's not do that. But when it comes to those bullet points, one of the big things is, is going to be personality of the region. I invite the consumer to visit because I think that it, it really is the friendliness and the personality of this region that truly gets people enamored with Paso. The wines are great, yes, and that can be in the bottle that you buy at your dinner table in your origin city or it could be coming here and buying one. But when you come to Paso, that's one of the biggest takeaways is, and even trade and, and mediate and say that the personalities of your region really help make it shine. With the consumer, I encourage them to be a little bit more adventurous. And because we have 64 different varieties that are grown in Paso and many blends thereof, 
let's try something other than Cab or Syrah. Let's try something a little different because that's what you're going to get when you come to Paso. You're going to get Spanish and Italian varieties or whatever it is and give that a shot. And then also don't be intimidated. I know that people that you know don't live in California, they might be a little intimidated to try uh, you know, something new. I say outside of California because Californians are so, so knowledgeable of who we are, where we are. But you know, whether you're visiting or not, try a Paso wine. Why not? Give it a shot. <laughs> awesome. There's a few producers in Paso, especially on the, the, the eastern side, that are more biodynamic or you know organic. Is that a big push for the region? Is that something that you might differentiate from a marketing perspective? I think we're seeing a lot more wineries that are not only being certified sustainable. So there's a couple of different ways you can do that. You can get your SIP certification through Vineyard Team, or you can do it through the state of California through their sustainable agriculture program. And then there you know, gets to be organic and then biodynamic and then regenerative and then all of the things and all of the Demeter certified or organic and all that. But what we're seeing here is a lot more vineyards that are getting their organic certification. I think it's impressive when brands that are large brands like Castoro, for instance, who has a great majority of their vineyards are certified organic. That's awesome. And then that some of them are even practicing biodynamic farming without jumping in all the way because maybe, you know, for the scale or whatever, but then you've got Via Creek and Tublis and so many other brands that are doing the biodynamic thing that are actually being certified. All those dry farm vineyards, so many of them are certified organic because they're not doing you know anything anyway as it is. And so we're starting to see more and more of that happening. And then regenerative, I mean, Tublis Creek, always that forward-thinking outfit. They're definitely the first winery in the Paso Robles region to be certified regenerative farming. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, I listened to a podcast recently on regenerative farming from Tublis Creek. It was quite interesting. So, Chris, wrapping up every episode, we always ask our guests one last question. And this is, if you were to identify a lasting trend for your region, what would it be? And what do you think a fizzling fad for your region is as well? Ooh, interesting. A lasting trend for our region. You know, I think that we're always going to try new and different things. I believe that to be true. I think that whether it's through blending, whether it's through alternative vessels and the amphora thing that's happening these days, and so many wineries in town are starting to get on that amphora train or that the concrete vessel train thing. Experimentation will be a constant out of Paso. I believe. And then what do I think or hope would be a fizzling fad? Well, in general, I kind of hope that the ever so slightly sweet wine, but not sweet wine trend would go away. (laughs) (laughs) Is that something that's got a in Paso? Is that something that's plagued Paso? I think that there are some brands that chase that because it's like, oh, well, look, this brand over here and that brand over there having so much success with that, like, you know, hint of, sweet, big wine, I guess I just don't get it because I think at some point in time, you paid a lot less for wines that tasted like that. But then all of a sudden it became hot, no pun intended, but it's a thing, right? 
And I was like, why? Why, why is that? Uh, but anyway, but for Paso, I would hope that people wouldn't associate us anymore with this hot region. I mean, you got to come here and check it out. I mean, granted, yes, we get warm. But as you said, Robert, we cool off at night. You might even have frost on your windshield and it's, it's going to heat up for the day. So I think if people came here and, and visited and realized what this growing region is all about, I think they'd probably get their head around it a lot quicker. Yeah, definitely. The diversity of the region, it was very shocking to me when I've visited and also tasted a bunch of wineries. So and, and now that you've mentioned the 64 grape varieties, like I've experienced a good number of those firsthand while I was there. I had that kind of perception up until a couple of years ago when I visited it. It was changing to visit and see that. I would say the culinary scene was quite impressive there as well in terms of in the town of Paso Robles as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we definitely have a lot of those chef-owned type of restaurants that have some really original menus, some really good, honest cooking that goes great with wine. Yeah, that's that's definitely one of those assets that we're quite proud of. And so, Chris, for any listeners that want to check out more about Paso Robles, where should they go, either on social media or a website? Yeah, so if you go to PasoWine.com, you're going to be able to see everything you need to learn about Paso in there. There's a lot of interesting pages to explore to be able to understand wine better or our growing region or just look up wineries and events. You can see it all there. You can also find our social media handles there as well. If you go down to the bottom, or I think we have it even at the top. But if you're on Instagram, we're at Paso Wine, just like our website, PasoWine.com. So we're just at Paso Wine on Instagram. And on Facebook, we went a longer route on that one. And it's Paso Robles Wine, singular, not plural. So Look us up on Facebook at Pastor Robles Wine. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Great. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.